Welcome back to the program. Let's begin with the prayer. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Heavenly Father, in Jesus' holy name, I thank you and praise you for the gift of the saints, for the gift of uh, the popes, for our first pope, St. Peter, and for his successors. Lord, we pray for Pope Francis today. We ask that you would bless him with the graces he needs to be protected from harm and danger, spiritually, physically, and in any other sort, as well as that he would be guided and anointed to shepherd the church along the path of holiness. Lord, we ask that you would bless all of the successors of the apostles, the bishops, and uh, for those bishops that are beautifully um, evangelizing after the spirit of St. Paul. Lord, give us the grace to draw forth insights from their lives, from this feast, for our own spiritual good. And we make this prayer in Jesus' holy name. Amen. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Well, I have a few things to talk about today. Um, one thing is, is this word that I used. That is, um, it's something that you'll um, read about in certain spiritual manuals. And it has to do with the idea of in discernment. When you're discerning, you have a sense of, you're trying to figure out, like, what's God's will? Is this, and then, not just what's God's will in terms of action to take, but what is God saying to us? What is God communicating to us as well? And this word that has been used quite a bit, especially in the Catholic Charismatic Renewal, but it's traced back to the whole theology of discernment, is the word confirmation. Do you have some kind of confirmation? Is it, you know, a confirming word, a confirming uh, sign, indicator that the message that you uh, believed was coming from God, the guidance that you were getting from God, you found a corroborating piece of evidence that from the interior, from the inside, there's a sense of saying that fits. Yes, that's right. That 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 works. That that's correct. So it's a conf- a confirmation. And I can remember the way that this would show up uh, in um, Catholic charismatic prayer meetings is that someone would say, hey, I'm getting this scripture, and the scripture, here it is, read the scripture, and it has a particular theme to it. And then someone might say something like, I confirm that word. Here's the scripture that was I was just reading as well, or here is a word of prophecy that I was writing down and I was about to share with people. And so there's this sense of saying that what one person is sensing, another person is also a sensing as well. And, and that is where the idea of confirmation comes in. Confirmation, uh, having a confirming word is very valuable when we're trying to get a sense of confidence in our own discernment. Like, is this really right? Or am I just deluding myself? Am I, am I confused about what, what God is, is, is communicating to me? And so I'm going to begin by sharing with you a couple of confirmations that I received yesterday and today. So that would be on Tuesday and on Wednesday at Mass as they related to the message that I brought to you on Sound Insight. So if you've listened to Sound Insight on Tuesday and Wednesday, the, the themes were faith. And they were talk, uh, I was talking quite a bit about these different levels of faith. And in, um, on the first day, I mentioned this sense of that there are these gifts of the Spirit, and there's a prophetic word that you're supposed to speak God's truth in a way that has a prophetic quality to it. So at Mass, the first reading on Tuesday was from uh, the book of Amos. And in it, as I'm listening to the word, it talks about um, the Lord. And um, surprise, surprise, it says, indeed, the Lord God does nothing without revealing his plan to his servants, the prophets. Indeed, the Lord God does nothing without revealing his plan to his servants, the prophets. The lion roars, who will not be afraid? The Lord God speaks, who will not prophesy? 
And that particular uh, verse from Amos, uh, the Lord God does nothing without revealing his plan to his servants, the prophets, is one of the verses that is often used in charismatic circles when there's a teaching around the gift of prophecy. The gift of prophecy isn't, as I mentioned on Tuesday, it's not about revealing the future. It's not about speaking, uh, you know, here's what's going to happen in the future, but rather, here's the word that needs to be heard in the present. This is the word that the Lord is speaking to the present moment, and if we don't respond appropriately, then that future aspect also will come into play. And so when I heard that, I just smiled, and I was like, wow, Lord, thank you for confirming the theme that I was talking about, that I brought that up. And, and I've been mentioning a bit around this whole reality of, um, of spiritual gifts and the gifts that are associated with the deeper release of the Holy Spirit in our lives. Well, then what happens on Wednesday? So I'm recording this on Wednesday night. Again, we went to Mass. This time we went to Mass on Wednesday night. And I realized that on the program for today, I focused on part two of these different levels of faith, and I was talking about faith as a relationship. And I, I spent a lot of time unpacking the, a theme from uh, Deus Caritas Est, uh, God is Love, and in that first encyclical, he unfolds the meaning of being Christian by talking about this inbreaking. right? It's not just about um, how you behave morally or even about profound ideas that you believe, but it's about the encounter with Jesus. And he uses the language of event, that this is, has an event quality. An event quality is this breaking into the present moment. There's this uh, intervention into the flow of what would be expected with something that is striking from above. It's a vertical interruption of time. And that's what an event is as compared to the natural flow of chronological time. Well, what happens when we go to Mass? We go to Mass, and here is, on this feast of Saints Peter and Paul, uh, the first reading. And the first reading is from Acts chapter 12. And in it, what happens? Peter gets arrested. And by the way, I'm going to spend more time in this program talking about Peter and Paul uh, to honor the feast day that happened yesterday. Um, and I think there's some beautiful insights that we can gain for our life of faith. And, and you know, it's okay if they happen a day later. <laughs> because, uh, okay, so, but he gets arrested, and there is a word that is used associated with Peter in prison— and an angel shows up. And, and the word that is used to describe the angel showing up while Peter is in prison is, guess what? It's the word suddenly. Suddenly, the angel of the Lord stood by him, and a light shone in his cell. He tapped Peter on the side and awakened him, saying, get up quickly. So that sense of suddenly. Then when they eventually get out, they get out of the prison, they make their way out, out of the city, and they go down an alley, and suddenly the angel left him. That same word, that same word, suddenly, which I thought was really cool because I never associated that word suddenly with an event. But can you see it? Do you see the, the confirmation, this confirming of the idea that the Christian life, the life of being a disciple of Jesus, is marked less by the ordinary flow of activities from the future through the past or the movement from the, from the present, leaving the past behind into the future, right? That, that flow along the, the, the timeline of my own history from young to old, well, no, no, no. It's that in the course of any day, every day, there is an opportunity for a breaking in. Suddenly, immediately, intervention into time, the Lord speaks. And so what's an angel? A messenger from God. He's the one who is bringing God's message or doing God's work in the moment. And that's exactly what this angel does. And so I love that. So it, it was, for me, a beautiful confirmation. Like, oh, thank you, Lord. Thank you for giving me this sense of saying, uh, 
what I'm communicating, what I'm discerning I ought to be speaking about on the radio, on Sound Insight, that, that's a little indicator that I'm on the right track. So it's something you can ask for in your spiritual life. It's something that in the, the, the teaching on discernment, if you read the great spiritual writers on discernment from the scriptures all the way through our tradition, there is this sense of saying, test and reflect. Test, uh, test everything, hold fast to what is good, right? First Thessalonians, I think it's 5.13. Test everything, hold fast to what is good. That sense of, you have to pressure test things. Don't just believe that you're for sure right when you sense, this is the direction I'm supposed to take. This is the word for sure that the Lord is speaking to me or wants me to bring to someone else. No, I, I, I need to learn to sift through the sensitivities within me to say, am I, am, I, am I getting that right? Am I clear about what it is I'm supposed to, um, to be saying here? And, and to seek a confirmation. This is something that we, as brothers and sisters in faith, brothers and sisters in Christ, can provide to each other. So, for instance, my oldest daughter, Mary Grace, sent me an assignment that she was uh, given in one of her summer school classes. And she's at a, a Christian school. It's not a Catholic school, but it's a devout Christian school. And she's been really pleased with it to this point. Well, the, uh, the, this particular teacher asked the kids to read this story. It's a fiction story. It's a short story. Um, and in it, it's a, it's a young man um, telling his experience of being LGBTQ or same-sex attracted, and the assignment had to do with um, putting into a box your own beliefs about um, what his uh, status is or his behaviors are, and instead find statements that he is stating that he, you agree with. And you have to do that without condemning his belief or his actions um, uh, or his self-identification, but rather find five statements of agreement. And, um, and Mary Grace shared this with me. And it led to this beautiful exchange back and forth, first through text and then through email, where she would say, you know, uh, this is really bothersome to me for this reason and this reason. And I had a chance to pressure test her thinking. I, ha I helped her to process her thinking so that she was able to refine what it was she wanted to speak back to this teacher about this assignment. And in the end, it became a, um, a beautiful and powerful exercise for her to sort out not only what's the right approach to the issue, namely, there's someone that is part of your life who comes to you and says, I now self-identify with this particular gender, with this particular orientation, and I'm asking you to uh, understand the pain and suffering I've had before I've done this, and now I'm asking you to accept me in this new gender expression, this new orientation, and to celebrate with me the newfound freedom, in quotes, that I'm, I'm experiencing through expressing myself in this way. And how do you respond to that? And then how do you respond to the teacher who puts forward the assignment in the, in the way that that teacher did? And so it was a really interesting exercise. And, and here's the, first of all, here's where we ended up. Where we ended up was, uh, I gave her a quote from St. John Paul II, who was speaking to the Austrian bishops at a time when there was quite a lot of controversy regarding the way that the Austrian church was um, engaged with the state in Austria around certain moral issues. And uh, Pope John Paul II said to them, this is not an exact quote, but it, it's a pretty, pretty close. He said, truth without love is a destructive lie. Truth without love is a destructive lie. And so is love without truth. Love without truth is a destructive lie. 
And that led to the pathway for my daughter to say to the teacher, in my own experience of living and uh, loving uh, family members who have walked a path that involved them self-identifying with a um, uh, with a, a new gender expression and new orientation uh, that was apart from what uh, the the Catholic faith would say is an authentic, uh, fully uh, uh, God-given way of expressing in a life-giving way one's own um, sexual identity. That um, she was able to say that my this family member of mine. I've made it really clear that I, I love her, but that I love her enough to not let her get away with things that I know are not good for her. You see, that's truth and love together. Truth and love together. I love you, but I love you enough not to let you get away with. And that means not to celebrate, not to validate, not to promote, not to uh, even stay quiet about the way that you're living that I know is not good for you. Because if the way you're living is, is a betrayal of the truth of our faith about sexual identity and sexual expression, then that is only going to lead you into darkness and confusion and spiritual bondage, bondage in your thinking and your attitudes and in your way of life. I don't want that for you. I love you enough. I love you enough to bring you the truth. I love you enough to say, I love you as you are, but I can also distinguish the loving of you as a person made in the image of God and the celebration of behaviors that I know through faith are only leading you into darkness. Despite what the people around you will say, despite what even your own internal experience is telling you, this is wrong, this is dark, this will not lead you to life. It won't lead you to flourish. And so I will never celebrate it. I will love you, but I will never celebrate you in that. And that's the boundary. And you know what? That's the beautiful teaching that we should bring to Catholic and Christian people today who are going to stand up against a transgender ideology that wants to confuse, disrupt, and disturb the peaceful development of one's own sexual identity. Welcome back to Sound Insight. This is Tom Kern. It's great to be with you today. Today, I'm, I'm a day late, as you're hearing it, regarding honoring the beautiful feast on June 29th, the feast of Saints Peter and Paul. And you stop and ask, well, they seem like such great saints. Why wouldn't they have their own feast day? Well, you're probably aware that um, St. Paul, for instance, it does show up on the liturgical calendar in another place. He, his feast day, uh, the conversion of St. Paul in January, for instance. Um, but um, uh, Peter and Paul, honored together as these two pillars of the early church, uh, the apostle to the Gentiles in St. Paul and the, uh, the first pope. The common linking point to this feast is that well, they both died martyrs' deaths in Rome. So not only, again, two, the, two probably really the most prominent um, apostles in the early church uh, at the very beginning and both dying martyrs' deaths in Rome. In fact, there's a beautiful story. I don't mind repeating it. It's one of the lesser-known sites to visit in Rome. And I remember stumbling upon it when my family was there um, visiting, and um, I had I had arrived there. No, no, wait a minute. I had gone there with my brother, my uh, my older brother. We took a trip um, to Italy, uh, my last year of college, and um, he had graduated from college, and it was just sort of a, a trip to celebrate, really, our, our faith as well. And we went through Italy and got to see so many amazing sights. In fact, I. I have to, I'm going to take, I'm going to get on another rabbit trail. I was talking to my son, John Mark yesterday. We were 
coming back from, I don't know, I don't even remember where we were coming back from, but he, uh, he said, Dad, uh, he's reading this book that uh, I'm going to be having the author on. Um, it's responses to Protestant responses to Catholic teachings. <laughs> so Catholics respond uh, in saying, here's my defense, here's my apologetic defense to Catholic church teaching. And, well, this is how Protestants respond to those. Well, how do you respond to those? Well, Carlo Broussard wrote a book, and Catholic Answers published it. And it's one of four books that I have that I am um, hustling to get these folks on the air so that you can enjoy them as part of your own summer reading. So soon to come. But he was talking about not only the things that he learned apologetically about uh, the Catholic faith, like how do you defend the Catholic faith as being authentic, as being reasonable, as being truly biblical, and as what Christ revealed. Um, but then he started to point to he started to point to other um, other signs of credibility, and one of the signs of credibility was incorrupt bodies, the incorrupt bodies of saints, and he's like, Dad. Do any other religions have incorrupt bodies of saints, uh, of their holy people? And not that I'm aware of, but Catholic Church kind of has a corner on that market <laughs> of saints whose bodies don't decay after death or have only the slightest aspects of decay. And there's no scientific or medical explanation for these bodies that have not been um, attempted to be preserved through any kind of... Uh, chemical procedures are looking like they're sleeping. Like, how do you explain that? Isn't that, doesn't that make you wonder? And then he says, yeah, and what about Our Lady of Guadalupe? And what about Eucharistic miracles? And uh, it, it, and it's like, yeah, what about Lourdes? What about healing miracles? And And so it's all of these things that are, again, these incredible signs of credibility. Incredible. Incredible signs of credibility. <laughs> Stupendous, amazing, astonishing signs of credibility that should at least make folks wonder, hmm, how is it the case that the Catholic Church has all of these astonishing wonders that are unexplainable by science, but they all are associated with a profession of faith in the living Lord? So, for another day. So my brother and I, when we would, we were traveling our way through Italy, we would seek out like the tombs of saints that were incorrupt, as well as other great saints. And sometimes we'd stumble into places that had those types of mir- uh, those types of wonders uh, right there, like Saint Joseph of Cupertino, Saint Philip Neri, uh, unexpected blessings just wandering in and saying, "Whoa, look who's here!" <laughs> Okay, one of the places that we visited was in Rome. So you go to Rome, and of course, there's all the biggies, the big things that you'd want to go see. And I won't even, you know, won't even name them other than to say that one of the little known places, certainly lesser known, is this Marmitine prison. The Marmitine prison, or Marmitine prison. And the only way that we uh, found out about it is it was next to the Roman Forum, and there was a um, there was a church there, small church, and there was a side like gift shop. But when you went into the gift shop, there was this little like you could buy a, a ticket, uh, an entry pass, and to go down into this underground or below ground level prison, and Come to find out, it's this prison where Peter and Paul, Saints Peter and Paul, were kept for at least some of the time together while they were in captivity in Rome. Whoa. I I mean, can you imagine what that must have been like for them? Here they are, each following the path that the Lord had for them, Peter, uh, you know, being taken and in his journey that got him to Rome. 
and Paul on his missionary journeys, and then eventually imprisoned and then brought to Rome. And then both of them ending up in the situation, one of the traditions is that Peter, uh, during the um, during uh, Nero's um, uh, burning of the city, there was this sense of, we better get Peter out of here. There's going to be this persecution of the followers of Christ. But the quo vadis, where are you? You know, where are you going, Lord? And Jesus saying, I'm going back into Rome to be crucified because you won't. <laughs> oh, darn it, Lord. Yeah, go back to heaven. I got this. I got this. And so Jesus uh, disappears. Talk about discernment and confirmation, huh? <laughs> it was confirmed that he was not to leave the city and leave the persecution, and he was to go back and face not only persecution, but death by crucifixion, which, as you know, he said, not uh, crucify me, but not after the same manner as the Lord was crucified. Crucify me upside down. Um, In that place of meeting, by the way, is another one of those lesser-known chapels on the Appian Way, and it's a it's a chapel that the front door comes right up against the Appian Way. Like there's no sidewalk, there's no walkway, no entrance at all. You just like take one step out the door and watch out because there are cars passing by. But when you go in to this chapel, it's the Quo Vadis Chapel, a Quo Vadis Domine Chapel. Where were you going, Lord? That was the historical place of encounter that Peter had with Jesus. And there's even... I kind of smile at this, a footprint in marble that was the footprint of Jesus uh, at that, as a sign of memorializing that encounter, Jesus's foot, it made an impression into the marble itself, which you, you don't, you don't have to believe that this is accurate or authentic in, in, in say that you're, being Catholic faithfully depends on whether or not you accept this footprint as really coming from Jesus. But if it does come from Jesus, he was a giant, or he had huge feet. I mean, like size 20. I mean, they're huge. All right, enough of that. Let's go back to the Mamertine prison next to the Roman Forum. I can remember going down into the uh, down there, and there's a, a, a plaque on the wall that tells the story of Peter and Paul there meeting up again. And, and that must have been quite a, a, um, a reunion for the two of them to be praying together, encouraging each other, and, and guess what? Sharing discernment together. Like, where is this going to lead? What's, what's this going to mean for us next? And I'm going to bet that they encouraged and exhorted each other to keep the faith to the point of martyrdom and that it was not going to be a shocking surprise to them that that would happen. Even though, here's the thing, even though both of them have had encounters with angels visiting them suddenly while in prison in the most humanly secure circumstances, they were locked down. And yet, you bring in the power of God, and all of a sudden, it interrupts human power, and they walk away free. And I'm betting that they were wondering whether an angel was going to show up at night and was going to loosen their bonds and give them a way out. And so, uh, just a really—that's just frankly also a really important um, uh, principle of discernment. Just because in one moment in your history, in your journey, this is how the Lord intervened, and in His intervention, this was the result. That you don't just thereby conclude that the Lord's going to do it like that again. However. They did do what they were doing every time they had a chance in prison, which was profess their faith, share their faith, witness to their faith. 
And also in the Marmentine prison, there is a little flowing fountain of water uh, that um, supernaturally uh, appeared when they were uh, proclaiming the gospel in that moment in, in the prison with the guard that was there. And the guard said, I want to be baptized. Well, they didn't have any water at hand. So the Lord provided water from the rock and they baptized that guard. And so to be able to stand in the same physical locale, the same physical space where Peter and Paul were, it's just, it's mind-blowing. It's really powerful. Uh, and, and you know, it's, um, I say that in, in, when you walk around Rome, you're going to bump into a number of places that are like that. You're there. You're right there at the place where Peter and Paul were, where other saints are buried. And the, when, I, when I say this with such like awe, they say, you haven't been to the Holy Land, have you? <laughs> I'm like, no, I haven't. And they're like, you take what you just said there and elevate it threefold. Welcome back to Sound Insight. This is Tom Kern. It's a great joy to be with you today. Today we're, we're getting some encouragement, some inspiration from Saints Peter and Paul, learning about discernment, learning about finding um, some of the, the principles and practices that are part of our life of faith when it comes to confirming. Like, I want to confirm that what I'm sensing is from God is actually the right thing to do. And so whether it's, how do I respond to a teacher, like my daughter Mary Grace, or um, how do I come to... Uh, get a greater sense of, of clarity in, in hearing what is the message God is speaking to me or what God wants me to share with others. So uh, that spiritual gift, so very powerful. Parents, pray for that gift. Pray for that gift of discernment that you'll be able to come to greater clarity about speaking the word that God wants for you to speak to your family. So pray for the gift of prophecy. I know that's not a normal gift that you're thinking about praying for, Maybe think about it as counsel. Think about it as having an insight that comes from God that says, I see what's happening in that circumstance at a human level, and I want to have the right words to speak into it so that folks will know what to do. It's a lot of what I do in coaching. Listen deeply to what's happening there. Try to get a sense of insight. How do I see into it and help them see into it in a new way? And then in speaking that to them, help them come to insight and then talk about, okay, well, now what? What do you do with that insight? How does that translate into action? Right? That's a really important skill to have in marriage and as parents. So pray for that gift. The Lord is... I'm going to say it this way, please. The Lord is more willing to give you the gift than you are to receive it. The Lord has a larger portion of this gift he longs to communicate into your life than you imagine. The Lord has already communicated this gift to many of you, and he is just waiting for you to unwrap that package, to ask and seek and knock and say, come Holy Spirit, release within me these charismatic giftings that will enable me to fulfill the mission that you have for my life. Can you pray like that? That shouldn't be a shocking prayer. That shouldn't be a prayer that is overwhelming to us, but rather Shouldn't it be a, a way of saying, you're the living God, and, and you are longing to come close to me and nurture that personal relationship suddenly, suddenly, with breaking, you know, in-breakings into our lives. And Lord, I want to be able to, to bear fruit in those encounters. I talked at the very end of yesterday's program about um, growing in a personal relationship not only with Jesus, but with the person of the Spirit and the person of the Father. That you can grow and nurture and develop a more intimate, personal, profound, vital relationship with the Holy Spirit. Pray for that. Please pray for that. 
I ask Jesus for that gift, for a greater sense of intimacy with the Holy Spirit, with a greater sense of uh, docility to the Holy Spirit, with a greater sense of coming to experience the delight that the Holy Spirit takes in you. I, I don't know, I think, I think sometimes the Holy Spirit gets short shrifted. There's a short shrifting of the Holy Spirit in the in the the life of the the life of the Christian faith that somehow we can um, approach the first person of the Trinity, God the Father, because we can, for better or worse, relate to the concept of Father and relate to the reality of being fathered to, to some degree or another. And, and there are fatherly figures, as well as our own human father, that, are, uh, that we can be blessed with in our lives, right? So to go from human fathers to God, th- you have a bridge. Jesus, well, we, we've talked a lot about Jesus, so we won't go there. But what about the Holy Spirit? Holy Spirit, dove, wind, uh, the Holy Spirit. There's no manifest um, uh, personage of the Holy Spirit. It's hard to imagine what does the Holy Spirit as a person in, in the in the like imagery of a person look like, and you, you don't have any imagery of the Holy Spirit as a person. You have the you have image you have the image of fire, and a dove. Those are pretty much the the symbols. There's one the finger of God is another one. Right the, there's a, the concept of anointing. That's another one. Of course, I already talked about wind. The spirit is this wind, this bright wind of God. Uh, there, there's this re- reality of the Holy Spirit as love in God, but hard to concretize that again. However, with all of that said, it doesn't mean that you can't come into a more intimate, personal relationship with the Holy Spirit. I love the Holy Spirit. I love you, Holy Spirit. And I love that you love me. And Holy Spirit, I I desire to grow in a much more intimate relationship with you. And I know, Holy Spirit, from our tradition, that the way that you communicate to me is through the gifts you've given. That you will communicate to me through these touches, these, these gifts that come alive, these graces that come alive, in our lives, like, well, the sevenfold gifts, right? Wisdom, knowledge, understanding, etc. But in these other charismatic giftings as well, the Holy Spirit, you can have this sense of, right, the Holy Spirit is moving. He's moving in the, mid- in the midst of us. He's moving here in me. That shouldn't be a foreign phrase. That shouldn't be an awkward phrase. If it does sound awkward to you, I encourage you, please, Ask the Holy Spirit to deepen your relationship with Him. Ask for more in your relationship with the Holy Spirit. Ask for more gifts of the Holy Spirit. I am going to say this, that if you feel this prompting to ask for more gifts, that comes from God. doesn't come from you. Maybe there are elements, right? Maybe not be a perfect, pure intentioned. But you know what? When the gifts are given, there's also a stewardship given. There's a mission given. There's a purpose behind these gifts that are given. And I got to tell you, the, 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 the purpose is often the mission that is already ours, the vocation that's already ours. Why live your vocation to be a husband and a father without the fullness of the gifts and graces and the power of the Holy Spirit that he has made available to you? Why would you do that? Wives, mothers, why would you pour your life out day to day in, in order to be faithful to the duties that are part of your state in life without leaning on, looking to, and, and being caught up in the flow of the power of the Holy Spirit? There's more of the Spirit for you. Ask the Holy Spirit. Ask the Holy Spirit and watch what he'll do. Watch what he'll do. Okay. Um, I want to come back around to the feast day today, the feast of St. Peter and Paul. And I'm going to go to that reading 
um, that is from uh, Acts chapter 12. If you went to Mass yesterday, the first reading was Acts chapter 12, and it is a really fascinating passage uh, to dig into and supremely relevant for our lives. So let's dive right in. It says, In those days, King Herod laid hands upon some members of the church to harm them. And you immediately stop and say, okay, wait a minute now. King Herod, I've heard that name before. Who is this King Herod? Well, it's Herod Agrippa I. Who's that? Well, he's the grandson of Herod the Great. Now, Herod the Great was the one who slaughtered the innocents, okay? And he's the nephew of Herod Antipas, who was the Herod that killed John the Baptist and interrogated Jesus, okay? So here you now have Peter, and what's Peter saying? Okay, I'm also now going to get connected to this King Herod, because what does King Herod do, this King Herod? He had James, the brother of John, that's James the Greater, that apostle, killed by the sword. And when he saw this was pleasing to the Jews, he proceeded to arrest Peter also. And so here's Peter. He, he's got to be trying to discern, like, what's going on here? Um, what am I, how am I supposed to understand um, what is happening in my own life? So it starts with what he saw Herod do to James. So James was martyred. And Peter would be naturally to say, oh, goodness, this is a failure. This is bad. But remember now, martyrdom, is that a defeat or a victory? Well, the answer is yes. There's a way in which he's defeated because he's no longer alive on earth, but it's a victory because he was a witness to his faith in a way that is supreme, that united him to the act of Christ on the cross. Welcome back to Sound Insight. This is Tom Kern. It's great to be with you today. We are talking about this beautiful feast of Saints Peter and Paul, and I'm starting to walk through the first reading from yesterday just to point out some, some I, I would say, important insights that can connect to our lives. So just remember, just like the fact that James is referenced here, that he was martyred, by the political leaders of the time, it appeared at a human level to be a defeat that was pleasing to the Jews, and it led and spurred Herod on to then go arrest Peter. So Peter, seeing this, must um, also recognize that, you know what, this is actually a victory. He's being brought closer to conformity to Jesus Christ. And it, interesting, just to say in passing, what do we notice about Herod? How does Herod make a decision to go arrest Peter? Well, he was essentially led by the people. He took an action based on popularity rather than on principle. So instead of leading the people, he was led by the people. And so that led him to then take Peter uh, into prison. Now, let's stop and let's ask, it must have been Peter's really, like, how does he discern what's happening here? Well, did you notice when Peter was arrested? It said it was the Feast of Unleavened Bread, and he had him taken into custody and put into prison under the guard of four squads of four soldiers each. He intended to bring him before the people after Passover. And Peter was thus being kept in prison. Okay. What is Peter thinking about his situation? Let's see. He's arrested during the time of the Passover. He's being persecuted by religious and political authorities. And there's a Herod in the picture. Hmm. What does that make you think of? How about Jesus? And James was just martyred. And, and it mentions the very night before Herod was going to bring him to trial, Peter is secured by double chains and sleeping between two soldiers and outside the door was other soldiers keeping guard. So right now, here is Peter and he is 
being kept in prison, and nothing's happening. So he must have been thinking to himself, this is it. This is my time. I'm going to give the ultimate witness, the ultimate testimony of, um, of my faith. And, um, and when you stop and think about the point that Luke is making about the, the kind of guards, um, there are 16 soldiers. He's chained between two guards in his cell, and there are guards outside. So what Luke is pointing out here, the, the writer of the Acts of the Apostles, is that Peter has no hope for escape, not from a human level. And you must have experienced that at a human level, you're in a Peter-like situation. From a human level, there, there's no hope. And that's where Peter puts his hope in divine intervention, because no one is beyond divine assistance. So remember now, Peter's kept in prison, and up to now, nothing's been happening. Well, what's the church doing? Well, it says that the church was uh, prayer by the church was fervently being made to God on his behalf. So the church is not doing nothing, but what they're not doing is planning his escape. Uh, in fact, you remember what Jesus said. He says, I'm sending you like sheep among wolves. Sheep among wolves don't really stand a chance. Well, what were the weapons that they have in this battle that they're facing? Well, they've got prayer. They've got prayer on his behalf. Just be ready for that. Part of your call is to pray on behalf of others. And it mentions that they are praying to God. They're not just simply saying prayers of intercession, but they are worshiping God, praising God, expressing gratitude to God, and they're doing so fervently, right? That's expressing a kind of belief that has an intensity to it, a focus to it. And, and you know, sometimes when, when you're facing overwhelming odds like Peter was, and, and this sense of saying there's nothing that we can do humanly, when you're together with others, that sense of feeding faith, nurturing faith, building up faith is so powerful. It's so powerful. Well, what were they actually doing through prayer? Well, they were putting him in the hands of God. Herod put him in the hands of the guards, in the hands of the, uh, of the, of the prison. No, they were putting him in the hands of God. Uh, but, and, and it's not, you know, they were expecting a certain outcome, but they weren't limiting what God could do. So this is where, if we look back into the scriptures, and they probably were trying to confirm, get a sense of, what is it that the Lord is doing here? Well, they would turn to salvation history, to the history of God's interaction with his people, to build up an expectant faith, even for the impossible. And um, what's so fascinating is, and the story, um, the story ends in the first reading before the, the funny, like, oh, wow, this is a riot, uh, that they didn't expect Peter to be let out of prison because Peter ends up showing up at the place where they are uh, praying and the, the person won't let him in. <laughs> and so there's a, the person who answers the door won't let him in uh, because they didn't expect, you know, Peter, I don't know who you are at the door, but we're too busy here praying for Peter to be freed from prison. Uh, I'm here. Um, I'm sorry, just, just stop. We're praying for Peter so that he'll be let out of prison. <laughs> so, yeah, even though they had expectant faith in the impossible, they were still astonished at God doing that. Now, I already mentioned to you about the way that the angel appeared suddenly out of nowhere, right? This is God's power to intervene happens in this way. Um, but you have a lot of details here that only could have come from Peter. There's light that shines in the cell, and there's a reason why. Prisons were built such that they would be pitch dark, pitch black. Um, it would be a room within a room within a room, right? So there's no light getting in there at all, except for the light of God. 
The angel taps Peter on the side. The chains fall from the list. And yet he gives him up. He gives him commands. Get up quickly, put on clothes, and follow me. So I love the details because it points out the fact that God knows the exact situation of those who are in bondage. And he knows exactly what they need to do step by step in order to be set free. Now, why is this important to you? Please hear me. You may be, even today, the Lord's angel to someone who's in a dark prison, maybe of their own making, a dark prison of of desperation, of some spiritual, emotional, relational bondage. And you're going to be the one who will bring light, who will bring a touch, a word, some guidance, accompanying them step by step to be able to be set free. And what happens to Peter? He's let out of the prison. And he thinks he's seeing a vision. He's in like a dreamlike state. He passes two sets of guards unnoticed. Goes out of the front gate, the front gate of the prison. It opens by itself and he walks to freedom. And the angel then leads him down an alley and then disappears. And that for me points to an important insight into how God often rescues us. He frees us beyond our own planning and action. It's often God's intervention into our lives, first of all, that carries us to freedom. I think that's so important for us to know. And then when he recovers his senses, and this is beyond what you have here, that God has rescued him. He didn't rescue himself. He has been rescued from Herod's intentions for him, but he's been rescued for God's intentions for him. And so suddenly the angel leaves. Again, these miraculous interventions, they're special graces, and we don't rely on them. We're not going to put God to the test, but rather we cooperate with the grace of God by our human efforts. And so uh, there's a detail here that, that you don't get in the book, but then where does Peter go? He goes to the house of Mary, where people are gathered in prayer. And so uh, Mary here is the mother of John Mark, the evangelist. And so Peter has a choice, and he makes the choice to go there, rather than to go back into a place of bondage. Well, why would we do that? Well, the Israelites, they longed to go back to Egypt after they were set free. So, out of time. I hope this has been a blessing. Join me tomorrow for more Sound Insight. God bless your day.